All right, what's going on, guys? So um, today I'm sitting down with Greg Knuckles, and we're going to be talking all about metabolic adaptation. Um, I guess it's kind of a precursor to the episode. I made a short video, a couple minutes long, maybe talking about it, uh, I think like a couple months ago, and I continue to get lots and lots of questions about it. And um, Greg and Eric, or what, was it Eric, or was it uh, kind of a combination that, that wrote the uh, metabolic adaptations uh, article for Stronger by Science? Oh, that was exclusively Eric. Oh, okay. Um, all right, well, I guess we can just shut it off here and we'll give Eric a, a shout and we'll, we'll do it again. <laughs> I mean, realistically, that would probably result in a better episode, but we, we can forge ahead while you have me here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was, it was a really, really great job. And uh, so since I continue to get so many questions about it, I figured I would uh, get, get you on here. So first off, thanks for coming on again, man. It's, it's great to have you here. Uh, yeah, no problem. You give a little bit of a, an intro for people who maybe aren't familiar with you and some of the work you do. Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Greg. Um, I'm a powerlifter, coach, and uh, sometimes I, I write about lifting heavy things on the internet um, and occasionally write about nutrition and metabolism stuff, but uh, not all that often. Awesome. Straight to the point. So uh, I guess why don't we just kind of couch this in, um, I guess, a little bit more of a succinct definition of metabolic adaptation and in, in how it might affect most people. Sure. So there are several defensible definitions of metabolic adaptation someone could, could go with. But I think that for practical purposes, a fairly expansive definition is uh, is probably the most appropriate and, and the most useful. Um, and so that would just be roughly uh, changes in total energy expenditure that happen as you gain or lose weight, uh, largely in response to um, sometimes conscious and sometimes innate behavioral and metabolic adjustments uh, as a result of increased or decreased energy availability. And can you give um, like some examples of ways that our body does this to, to kind of account for, for differences in energy expenditure? Sure. Yeah. So I think the, I think the place that most people's brains go first, um, maybe not quite as, as often in kind of like the quote unquote evidence-based fitness space these days, but certainly if you were to just throw out the term metabolic adaptation to, to just like a random passerby on the street and ask them like, Hey, uh, what do you think that means? And like, what, what do you think would be changing and adapting? Probably the, the first place most people's minds go is to, um, basal metabolic rate or resting metabolic rate. Uh, pe people have this idea that, you can say like crash your metabolism or go into starvation mode. Um, and, and basically just like, especially if you're dieting, you're in a, a, a state of low energy availability, your, your basal metabolic rate, just, just craters, just goes through the floor. Um, and that's not entirely correct. Uh, so your, your basal metabolic rate, um, is likely to decrease to some degree when you're dieting. 
uh, and may increase to some degree when you're gaining weight. Uh, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, just if you gain or lose lean body mass, metabolically active tissue, uh, you know, that's going to affect your basal metabolic rate, just how much energy you're burning to stay alive. Um, but then also basically your, your metabolism can become more efficient to some degree. So, uh, if you're in a period of, of low energy availability, like you've been in a deficit for a long time, you can get further down regulations in basal, in basal metabolic rate disproportionate to the amount of lean body mass you've lost. Um, and the, like a full accounting for the mechanisms of, of why and how that occurs. I don't think a, a full accounting exists, but one of the factors in play is just changes in, uh, in mitochondrial efficiency. So, um, you know, as you produce energy via oxidative metabolism, um, like the, the outer mitochondrial membrane is like slightly leaky, uh, and the leakier it is, the more inefficient your, your mitochondria work. And I mean, I, I'm sure you've, you've heard of DNP before, but for the listeners, if you've ever heard of, uh, like bodybuilders using the drug DNP, that's basically what it does. It makes your mitochondria, uh, less efficient. So basically more of the carbohydrate or fat you burn is just dispelled as heat instead of being useful energy. So anyway, you can get increases in mitochondrial efficiency. Uh, like they just become less leaky if you've been in a diet for a while. Um, so yeah, that is something that can adapt your, just your basal metabolic rate. Um, but like I said, I, I think that people often overestimate the degree to which that adapts. Uh, it mostly scales with changes in lean body mass and uh, increases or decreases disproportionate to the, the changes in lean body mass account for maybe like 10 to 15% shifts uh, or, or something of that nature. Uh, so that's one thing that can adapt. Another thing that obviously adapts right off the bat, if you go from maintenance to a calorie deficit or a calorie deficit to a calorie surplus is changes in thermic effective feeding. So you burn some calories just to digest, absorb, process the food you eat. And it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 10% of the total energy you're taking in. So if you are eating 2000 calories, yeah, like five to 10%. So if you're eating 2000 calories, you're probably burning between one and 200 calories just to absorb, digest, process those calories. So if you go down to 1500 calories a day, boom, now you've cut 25 to 50 calories off of your total daily energy expenditure, just because you're not eating as much. Um, so that's going to scale directly with how much you're eating. Um, Another thing that can adapt is just how much energy you're burning via exercise. So as you gain or lose weight, like most, most exercises that people are doing are to some extent weight dependent, um, like cycling, cycling and to some extent swimming are exceptions here. But you know, if you're, if you're running, say you're jogging, walking, whatever, just going about your day-to-day -day life, but we're, we're talking about exercise here. So, you know, you're going out for a jog, uh, you have to accomplish some amount of, of physical work, like work in the physics sense, uh, to move your body 
over, over the ground. Uh, and the more of your body there is, just the more work you have to do. And energy expenditure scales with the physical amount of work you do. So uh, even if there are no changes in, in running efficiency or anything like that, if you lose 20% of your body weight, all else being equal, you're burning 20% fewer calories when you go out for a jog. Um, and then, you know, that applies in the weight room as well. So energy expenditure in, with lifting uh, is going to scale with the, the total amount of physical work you're doing as well. So if you're dieting for a while, maybe your strength starts dipping, you're doing the same sets and reps, but now the load on the bar is a little bit lighter and you are still moving your body weight to some, to some extent for most exercises. Uh, you know, the energy cost of that exercise is going to go down just because you're not accomplishing quite as much work. And that can be compounded by, you know, just fatigue that comes with dieting. Like you have less energy, your work capacity goes down a little bit. So your training volume goes down a little bit independent of strength losses. And so you're burning uh, fewer calories during exercise. So that's something that can adapt as well. And the opposite occurs if you're, or the opposite can occur if you're in a prolonged surplus. Um, and then the last thing in, in arguably the most important thing that adapts is what's called NEAT or non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And that's just the amount of energy you burn <laughs> doing things that don't fall neatly into all of the other things I mentioned. So it's not basal metabolism. Uh, it's not strictly exercise. Like NEAT would be things like, yeah, just walking around the house, burning energy to sit upright instead of lying down, just like maintaining posture, doing chores, whatever. Um, and it's not thermic effective feeding. So it, basically if something doesn't fall neatly into the BMR, TEF or exercise buckets, it's probably neat. Um, and that's where, that's where most of the adaptations occur. Um, so, you know, if you're in, and I, I think that this is, I think that adaptations in NEAT are important to understand because they're often the things that go accounted for the least. So, you know, if you're say trying to track and quantify everything, you know, you may be roughly tracking changes in body comp and being like, okay, I'm not losing lean mass. So like my, my basal metabolism should be fine. Um, you know, I know I'm getting a, a small decrease in TEF because, um, you know, I I'm eating less, but that shouldn't be a night and day difference. Eh, maybe, maybe a hundred calories, maybe 200 calories, not a huge, a huge change. I'm tracking my training. Like, uh, if I'm doing endurance training, like my mileage hasn't changed performance in the gym is up. I'm not cutting my training volume. So, you know, everything should be the same. I should be burning about the same amount of energy as before. Um, so cool. Like I, I should be in a deficit and not have to cut my calories all that much. But the thing you're not quantifying is neat because that's incredibly hard to quantify. Uh, and that is uh, uh, like, that's where the vast majority of the adaptations occur. So, you know, it, it could be as simple as, uh, you know, you're sitting on the couch, you're watching TV and you're thinking like, yeah, should I get up and get a glass of water? Maybe if you, you had slightly more energy because you're not in a calorie deficit, you would go get that glass of water, but you know, it's the end of the day, you're, you're feeling fatigued because you're in a deficit and you're like, ah, whatever, I'm just going to sit here. And when I, when I have to get up and do something else, I'll get that glass of water, whatever, like save the steps. So it could be something as obvious as that, or like I mentioned, um, 
you know, like neat also includes like postural maintenance and things like fidgeting. So if you have more energy and you're, you have like a desk job and throughout the day, generally you sit with good posture and you fidget a little bit. And now you go to like slumping, like adopting a posture that doesn't take as much energy to maintain and you stop fidgeting that could account for a couple hundred calories a day that you just wouldn't even think about. Um, so yeah, basically all components of total daily energy expenditure can adapt to caloric surpluses, caloric deficits, weight gain, weight loss. Um, but, but it, all four of them can adapt, but probably adaptations to NEAT are, are generally the largest adaptations that you see. And they're also, I think to, to many people, the most annoying because they're by far the, the most difficult to quantify. Mm-hmm. No, I feel like those are pretty great um, uh, overview of everything. So one of the questions that um, I get a lot is how much variance is there from individual to individual? So for instance, like some people um, might lose 30 pounds and then they start kind of hitting that wall pretty hard. Other people mm-hmm. might lose like 70 pounds and they're still going pretty strong. Mm-hmm. So what are, what are some of the variables or like, have you seen any of those differences and what, what are some of those things to consider when you see differences between people who, who kind of hit that wall or start seeing a little bit more um, of an adaptive response at different, uh, at different benchmarks, I guess. Sure. Yeah. So um, can, can I answer that question a bit more expansively and just, yeah, and basically right. just talk about variance down, down every Avenue. Is that cool? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, man. Cool. Okay, so first things first, let's talk about variants just in basal metabolism. Um, so there are equations that, that you've probably come across online, um, the, like the Ketch-McArdle equation, the Cunningham equation. Ah, what's the really popular one? Whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, th- there are like there are like a dozen different uh, equations you can use to roughly estimate your basal metabolic rate. Um, and, and they're all generally fine. Uh, you know, basically you put in your, your age, your weight, your sex, uh, your, uh, sometimes for some of them, your estimated body fat percentage. Um, and based on those variables, just like basic demographic and anthropometric variables, it will attempt to estimate your your basal metabolic rate. And all of those equations are derived from population studies where essentially they take uh, like research grade measurements of all of the things that feed into the equation. They also took like research grade measurements of people's basal metabolic rates and essentially just run like multiple linear regressions to see how closely they can predict basal metabolic rate with all of those variables collected. Um, and so like they work okay, but the, the whole point of those equations is just to get a, a rough general ballpark estimate. And, and I think people don't fully understand that. So the, the typical estimation error for all of those equations for a variety of populations tends to be something like 200 to 250 calories. So that, that's the typical estimation error. And, uh, you know, it can, for a single individual, it can be four or 500 calories worth of error. So um, if you take two individuals who have 
the same body composition, uh, same age, same weight, same everything, where you would plug them into those equations and it would spit out the same number for for their estimated basal metabolic rate. Those two individuals on average would probably have similar basal metabolic rates, but it also wouldn't be completely outside the norm for them to have BMRs that differed by 500 calories a day. So there's, there's a lot of variance built in just at that step. And then if people are trying to estimate their, their total daily energy expenditure, they're probably going to multiply that BMR estimate by some sort of activity factor. Again, if you've messed around with online calculators to estimate your TD, after you get your BMR, that's step two, like hey, are you sedentary, moderately active, highly active, whatever. Um, and <laughs> those, are, <laughs> those are far from an exact science. So whatever that typical, that typical estimation error is for BMR, that's going to be inflated once you're going from BMR to total daily energy expenditure. So, you know, whatever... Whatever some calculator tells you your your estimated TDE is, it's probably somewhere in that general ballpark. But you should you should not be surprised if your actual total daily energy expenditure differs from that estimate by five six hundred calories. Like the the typical error is probably somewhere in the three to four hundred calorie range. But again, individual errors can can be quite a bit larger than that. So you know they're just in terms of TDE at maintenance and BMR at maintenance, there, there's quite a bit of variability between individuals, even with identical lifestyles and body composition. So then, you know, let's say two people get into a diet and everything I'm about to say uh, would, would roughly apply in a surplus as well. Um, so, you know, first things first, let's talk about, uh, adaptations to basal metabolic rate. Um, that's, that's largely going to come down, like I mentioned before, to changes in lean body mass. So, you know, that's going to depend on your nutrition. Are you eating enough protein? Are you cutting super fast versus more gradually? Do you still have a resistance training stimulus in place to help you maintain lean body mass? All of those things will matter. Uh, but some people are just a bit more susceptible to losing lean body mass when they diet than others. So there's going to be some variability in how much basal metabolic rate adapts uh, to being in a prolonged deficit. And, and for some people, those adaptations will be quite large. For some people, they'll be fairly minimal. Um, I, I, I don't have a citation immediately coming to mind to quantify that, but, you know, just... It, there is uh, there is some some degree of variance there. Um, then with uh, with exercise as well, you know, some people take a larger performance hit when they're in a deficit. Some people don't. That's going to impact the change in energy expenditure from exercise when you're dieting. Uh, and then, like I mentioned before, neat. That's where like that that's where the largest changes are occurring in. I do remember like general variability there. So there have been a couple studies that have attempted to quantify the variability in NEAT adaptations to a prolonged energy deficit. And on an individual basis, you can see everything from small increases in NEAT during dieting, like, you know, uh, and, and maybe part of that's just like behavioral, like you have it in your head, like, oh, I'm trying to diet, I'm trying to lose weight. So 
you know, let's like be a little bit more active throughout the day. But, you know, some people, even though NEAT generally decreases when you're in a deficit, some people actually see small increases in NEAT. Uh, and then other people can have decreases as large as six, 700 calories a day. So, you know, for people losing 20, 30 pounds, maybe the average decrease in NEAT would be two, 300 calories a day, but that range can span anywhere from twice the, like two, three times the average to going the opposite way and actually small increases. Um, so yeah, uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, there, there is a ton of variability. And when two people lose the same amount of weight, uh, one of those individuals might experience a decrease in total daily energy expenditure that's very reasonable, like one, 200 calories. And someone else may experience a huge decrease in energy expenditure. So uh, presently, I've lost almost 50 pounds. My, my high was 278, and I was 231 as of this morning. And based on a combination of my weight and nutrition data, my total daily energy expenditure was around 36, 3,700 calories per day when I started this diet. And uh, these days it's like 2,600. <laughs> so, um, which like I kind of expected because like previously when, when I've had to cut, I would just be like, yeah, like 24, 2,500 calories should get the job done. And like, I'd lose a little bit of weight and then I would just hit a wall super hard. And I'd be like, dude, for someone my size, who's training hard and is generally active, I should not have to go this low. Uh, but I, I wasn't like ever tracking things like super closely. So I was like, yeah, whatever. Like maybe I'm just getting in my head, but now like I'm tracking meticulously and I have the data to back me up. Like my, the extent of my metabolic adaptation has been about a thousand calories a day, which isn't fun. I, I would prefer <laughs> if that were not the case. Um, and like, yeah, I, I'm sure some people have it worse than me. A lot of people have it better. Um, but yeah, that's, that is the sort of, uh, variability that you can see. And do you see any sort of changes between individuals who are maybe kind of within a healthier body weight range? Let's just say like BMI for, for instance, right. Versus mm -hmm. people who are overweight or obese, like, do we see any sort of changes in the magnitude of, you know, these adaptations that actually could stand as like a pretty significant barrier to, to sustainable weight loss to get someone who is either, you know, fairly overweight or obese into that kind of normal range? Yeah. So um, on average, you do see that, but the differences I think aren't as large as people would expect. So um, let's see. Eric reviewed a study on our podcast, maybe like two months ago, I'm, I'm sure you could find it, um, that, that was looking at this particular question, um, where it was looking at total daily energy expenditure in uh, people with obesity versus normal weight folks, and then changes in total daily energy expenditure after a period of dieting. And what they found is that the total extent of metabolic adaptation was larger following a calorie deficit in people with obesity, uh, which would suggest that like, ah, like maybe that's a hurdle to sustainable weight loss. You're seeing larger decreases in total daily energy expenditure. Doesn't seem great. Uh, but on the flip side, um, 
pre-dieting, the people with obesity had considerably higher total daily energy expenditures in the first place. So the net result is even after weight loss, their total daily energy expenditure was still higher than the normal weight individuals. Uh, and, and the differences in mean metabolic adaptation also weren't enormous. Like I think it was an average difference of like 30 to 50 calories a day or something like that. Um, so yeah, like I, I do think that I do think that people who have obesity or are predisposed to obesity may have a slightly tougher shake uh, on, on the total daily energy expenditure side of things where maybe there are on average slightly larger metabolic adaptations to dieting. But I, I think that I think that it's easy to expect that those differences are larger than they actually are. Um, I don't think personally that that is the primary barrier to weight loss. Um, like I, I think it's something that might contribute, but based on the research I've seen, mo the, the larger differences have to do with like differences in hunger and satiety and, uh, and maybe some, some behavioral stuff as well. Like if, if someone who is, is lean and has been lean basically their whole life, um, you know, if they put on eh, like five pounds over the holidays or something and say, yeah, I want to strip five pounds off, whatever, let's go in a little deficit. Um, you know, they might have like, they're, they're going to experience increases in hunger in all likelihood, but they seem to be uh, relatively constrained in magnitude. Whereas people who maybe are more pre predisposed to obesity um, tend to have larger increases in hunger and larger decreases in satiation and in satiety when they go into a deficit. So I, I think that you know, I, I, I don't want to say that the potential differences in metabolic adaptation are completely unimportant, but I, I think that uh, like, like hunger and satiety regulation is, is probably playing a larger role. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's kind of what I've seen as well. Um, so when, when it comes to like these changes, I know sometimes people are concerned about um, establishing a new set point, you know? So, I mean, for instance, like you, you've lost, you know, you set upwards of about 50 pounds. Like that's, that's quite a bit of weight to lose. Mm -hmm. um, and that's over the last year or not quite. Uh, so I started taking it more seriously about a year ago. I was like 266 at the time. So I'm, I'm down like 35 pounds in the last year. Uh, but, but my Zenith, uh, was, was 278 and that was about two years ago. Okay. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Is, is there uh, is, is there an issue in terms of like your body wanting to normalize back up to that weight um, or, or, or have you seen uh, any, any sort of changes like that where, cause I know sometimes people are concerned that, you know, once you're dropping a substantial amount of weight that, you know, your body's just going to kind of want to, to re resort back to its, its initial starting weight. Mm -hmm. And that is an issue for some people, but um, how does that change, I guess, over time, especially when you are losing pretty significant amounts of weight? Yeah. So that, so that, that is a real thing. Um, and there, there are a lot of things that could be playing into it, but one of, one of the primary factors seems to be leptin, which, 
regulates hunger and satiety uh, quite a bit. And uh, so essentially your leptin levels scale with both energy intake, but also body fat stores. So uh, basically the, the higher your leptin levels are assuming sen- similar leptin sensitivity, the less hungry you are and the more satiated you feel vice versa. If your leptin is lower. So as your, so basically your leptin levels seem to uh, be influenced by and, and are also kind of like normalized to how much body fat you have. So as you lose body fat, your leptin levels decrease. Um, and so as a result, if you kind of got use, like your body more or less got used to having a certain amount of fat and therefore a certain level of systemic leptin, you lose fat, leptin levels go down. You just have, you're, you're just missing, uh, like the same levels of that metabolic cue for decreases in hunger, increases in satiation. And so your, your body is going to kind of naturally want to consume more calories and drift back up in weight. Um, so that, that's a very real thing. And another factor that uh, Delu and colleagues in 2018 proposed in, in a review paper is that it might also be related to decreases in lean mass. Like your, your body seems to want to preserve and hold on to fat mass, but also lean mass as well. And one of the things they propose is that a potential mechanism for the, the risk of body fat overshooting during a refeeding period after someone has lost weight is, you know, if you lose, uh, like, let's say five pounds of muscle and 10 pounds of fat or something like that, um, your, your body is going to want to regain those five pounds of muscle and absent any resistance training stimulus, uh, maybe it's going to try to do it really quick. And in order to regain those five pounds of muscle, which your body is kind of metabolically cueing you to do, you end up putting on 15 pounds of fat in the process. So now you wind up with five more pounds of fat than you started with. So, um, you know, maintaining a resistance training stimulus to maintain lean mass as best you can, uh, seems to help quite a bit with, uh, minimizing risk of, of weight regain, uh, after a diet. But yeah, I mean, even independent of that, like the leptin stuff still applies. So your body is going to want to try, well, not for everyone, but most people, most people's bodies are are going to want to try to regain the weight. And I think one of the mistakes people make, um, is they're viewing weight loss as a distinct period of time that is disconnected from the rest of their life. Like basically you have normal life and then you have a period of weight loss and you're like, okay, I'm going to do different things for a period of, of months, maybe up to a couple of years, if you have quite a bit of weight to lose. And I'm going to do something different here and that's going to help me lose weight. And then on the other side of that, I can go back to doing what I, what I was doing before, uh, enjoying my life now at a reduced body weight. And, uh, (laughs) that just doesn't work for most people. Like the, the habits and behaviors you had that got you up to the initial weight that you wanted to lose in the first place. Once you return to those habits and behavior, uh, in conjunction with the, the metabolic signals, like trying to get you to regain that weight, regain that fat, get those leptin levels back up, uh, 
you're probably going to regain a, a pretty good chunk of it. So I think it's more it's more productive to basically view a an attempt to lose quite a bit of weight as just like a break from what you were doing before. Like, hey, I was doing this stuff back then. Now I'm doing different things now. And once you've lost the weight you want to lose, you the amount of calories that you can eat is going to increase, but a lot of the behaviors and habits that were necessary for losing the weight, you're probably going to have to carry forward most of them ongoing. So uh, there's there's this thing uh, in the US called the National Weight Control Registry, um, where basically if you've lost, if memory serves, I think it's a minimum of 30 pounds and kept it off for at least two years. You can hit up the researchers and say like, hey, I've met your criteria. Uh, if you're doing any studies on weight loss maintenance, hit me up. I'd be happy to provide data. Um, so it, it's basically a large database of people who have successfully lost weight and kept it off. And one of the commonalities that those people share by and large is the uh, the ongoing maintenance of self-monitoring behaviors. So uh, most of them are either weighing daily or pretty frequently or tracking their nutrition intake daily or pretty frequently. Um, and yeah, like I, I think one of the mistakes people make is, you know, you lose a fair bit of weight. Uh, there was probably weight tracking in that process. There was likely diet tracking in that process. And people don't like doing that. I don't like doing that. Um, like it's it's slightly annoying. But if those habits were the things that helped you lose the weight, if you get away from that all at once, there is a decent chance that you're going to regain uh, a pretty decent chunk of it. And the same thing, like, you know, I assume most people listening to this are are frequent exercisers. But one of the other commonalities of, of people in the, the weight control registry is... Uh, like most of them, I, and I think this this is the strongest uh, commonality in that cohort, most of them exercise. And, and I think one of the things that uh, people get a bit confused about is that exercise doesn't seem to be particularly good for independently losing weight. Like I think a lot of people in the general population are like, ah, you know, I'm going to start going to the gym, I'm going to take up jogging, and I expect to lose a ton of weight in the process. And for some people that works, but for most people it doesn't. And the research bears that out. Like exercise independently um, doesn't seem to result in all that much weight loss absent dietary modifications, but exercise is very important for weight loss maintenance. Um, one, you know, because it helps you maintain lean mass, your body's not going to have that drive to overeat in the attempt to regain lean mass if you're if you're preserving it all along. Uh, and two, exercise helps quite a bit with hunger regulation. And, and I think that that's something a lot of people aren't aware of. Uh, so for most people, most of the time, uh, if you are at least moderately active, uh, your body tends to do a pretty decent job of matching energy intake with energy expenditure, even without tracking. Uh, so if you're like moderately active, highly active, that stuff tends to sort itself out. But if you're reasonably sedentary, like you're not moving around that much throughout the day and you don't exercise, then uh, what tends to happen is your, your energy expenditure is lower because you're not moving. 
but there, there seems to almost be kind of like a lower cap on how hungry you get throughout the day. And so you'll, you'll still be, you'll still have a drive to eat as if you were moderately active. So basically like you, your body's signals are, are regulating energy intake and energy expenditure pretty well at moderate and higher activity levels, but it can get dysregulated at lower activity levels. And so maintaining exercise, especially if you have a pretty sedentary job, seems to be very important. So I think one of the mistakes people make um, and, and why like a lot of people, most people, uh, if we're being frank, do regain a, a good chunk of the weight they've lost is because like, you know, maybe they took up some self-monitoring practices. They were weighing, they were tracking their nutrition. They started exercising, trying to lose weight. They were doing all of these things. They lost the weight. Then they said, cool, now I can abandon all of that and go back to living another way that I enjoyed more, which like no judgment. Uh, you know, I, I am, uh, never going to ding anyone for having a good time, but yeah, I, I think that if you, I think that if you look at it as more of a break and it's like, okay, I'm going to adapt some habits to help me lose weight. And then once I've lost the weight, I'm going to have to maintain most of those habits moving forward. You know, like I can maybe eat another three, 400, 500 calories per day, but most of the things that I was doing to help me lose weight, I'll probably have to carry forward uh, as I'm trying to maintain the weight loss. So like there, there are like metabolic things pushing you to regain the weight, but there are also behavioral and, and habit-based things that influence your, your risk of, of regaining weight. Um, and ultimately we don't have that much control over, <laughs> over the metabolic stuff. We have a lot more control over habits and behaviors. So I, I think those are the things that it makes more sense to focus on. Yeah, definitely. And like, I think you said quite a few really important things that even just kind of imply some sort of behavioral changes as well from like from the outset. So from a coaching standpoint, I also think it's really important, you know, if you are, I mean, I don't coach a lot of athletes who like specifically just have a weight loss goal. Like they'll be like, oh, I need to fit into this, you know, weight class or I need to improve my body composition so I can improve performance. But weight loss isn't necessarily the primary goal, but even still, um, a lot of the times if someone does have a, a reasonable amount of weight to, to lose, like I coach a, a handful of heavyweight athletes who are like, you know, plus three twenty, three forty kind of thing. Right. So yeah. they've got a fair amount of fat to lose. And, you know, at, at the onset, we'll usually have that conversation of like, okay, this is what the diet's going to look like. And then when you're done your diet, that that's not the end of your diet. That's the end of your like, you know, weight loss phase of the diet. Right. Yeah. And, and I find that like a lot of the times, especially if, if you don't necessarily go over that and who, I think it was Mel, um, Mel Davis from, from RP. I remember chatting with her about that. And that was one of the things that she was a big advocate about as well as like, Hey, your diet doesn't end when you stop being in a calorie deficit, you're yeah. still going. And I mean, if you, if you kind of have that already sort of pre-framed, it makes things a lot easier. Whereas if you're like, Oh my God, I only have two more weeks and then I'm done my diet. Like, thank God. And then you're just going to kind of go ham that yeah. can be pretty psychologically <laughs> destructive if you're like, okay, you're done your diet, but we're still going to have to slowly ease back calories. And you're like, fuck me. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think setting that expectation right from the get go is pretty important. And then exactly like you were saying, you know, what sort of habits are you going to maintain? Are you going to be able to kind of maintain the, the, the level of activity or the dieting or the adherence or whatever? Yeah. Um, 
And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of behavioral compounders as well. And like, even if you are just less sedentary, even just from like a behavioral standpoint, the likelihood, like if you're not that active, the likelihood of you, you know, binge eating at night or just, you know, eating out of boredom or whatever, Mm -hmm. I don't know. In my experience, anyways, that stuff goes up as well. Yeah. Um, So even just maintaining higher levels of activity just to kind of occupy your time sometimes (laughs) can, can also kind of help, I guess. Yeah. Um, No, for, for sure. I mean, like, so, so two things. One is I think a good question to ask yourself if you're trying to lose quite a bit of weight is the, the methods you use to go about creating a calorie deficit and start losing weight. You should ask yourself, these things I'm doing now, would I be happy doing them forever? Because that's basically what you're going to have to do. Um, and well, I mean, not, not necessarily. So, so there are basically two tracks that this could take. Um, you could either lose weight in a way that is sustainable, where as you're losing weight, you're building the habits that will contribute to weight loss maintenance. Um, so, you know, essentially when you get out of the diet, you keep behaving as if you were still doing the same diet, but you can just eat three, 400, 500 calories per day more. So that's one approach. The other approach is to lose weight in a way that is fundamentally unsustainable. Like you're not doing the things that you're not doing things that you think you would be able to maintain for the rest of your life. But once you lose the weight, then it's like, okay, now I've lost the weight. Now let's develop a new set of habits to help with weight loss maintenance. Both of those two things could work. The thing that doesn't work is losing weight in a way that is unsustainable. You're not developing habits in the process and then just reverting to whatever you were doing previously. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, ultimately you need to develop the habits to maintain the weight loss, either as you're losing the weight or make a, a really high priority of doing that after you've lost the weight, but it, it's, it's going to have to to come, uh, at one of those two times and, oh man, what, 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 so what did you say? There was one more thing I wanted to respond to and now I'm blanking on what it was. Um, I mentioned, um, like establishing expectations right from the get go. And then like how certain behaviors can kind of carry over, uh, independently to either prevent or promote like adherence. Oh yeah. yeah. So I, I remember it was about, uh, low activity levels. So I think one of the things that, I think one of the things that people should be maybe more empathetic about, uh, and I'm, I'm talking about kind of like naturally lean people here. Um, I, I don't think people fully appreciate the variability in terms of how people just innately respond to the modern environment. Um, and just like differences kind of like based on where you live. So there aren't many walkable cities in America. Uh, and so for the most part, if you want to do something, uh, just day to day, you're hopping in the car, you're driving, you're parking in a parking lot, you're walking 60 steps in the door. Like, um, if you want to be active throughout your day, either you have a somewhat physically demanding job or you have to go out of your way to be active. 
um, versus, versus living in a walkable city where that just comes naturally, you know, like the grocery stores four blocks away, like there's a bodega on the corner, all of the shops I want to go to are within walking distance, restaurants, whatever. My job's within walking distance, 20 minute walk. That's fine. Easier than taking a car. Don't want to pay for a cap. You know, like um, in a, in a situation like that, like you're living in a built environment where some level of just day-to-day activity innately happens. And I think one of the things that that can help that resonate with, with a lot of Americans is like most people who went to a four-year college where they lived on campus um, gain a fair bit of weight after they graduate. And one of the reasons for that is like you live on campus, you're walking to classes, you're walking to the dining hall. Even if you're as lazy as you can be, uh, unless you're just taking a ton of online classes, you're probably going to get seven, 8,000 steps a day just just going to your classes and doing the bare minimum <laughs> that you need to do in that environment. You get out, you get into the real world. And if, if you did the bare minimum physical activity, maybe you'd only be getting like 2000 steps a day. Um, and so like, yeah, we, we live in a built environment that doesn't encourage activity. And so if you have a sedentary job, some people, they like, even if they're quite sedentary, their hunger and satiety cues still match energy intake with energy expenditure reasonably well. And so they think like, oh, it's, it's easy to like maintain a healthy weight. I don't even have to think about it. Don't even have to exercise, but like other people just innately respond to that same environment very differently where like, you know, if, if two people eat the exact amount that their body tells them to eat and whatever feels appropriate to them. One person might maintain weight. The other person might gain weight at a, at a pretty decent clip. And so like when it comes to maintaining weight, losing weight, maintaining weight loss, the, the difficulty and level of effort it takes uh, varies quite a bit person to person. And for the people for whom it comes easy, I don't think they fully internalize that. Um, like, so, I mean, there, there have been times where I would like post, uh, like post a PR on Instagram and someone would just comment like, dude, why are you so fat? Uh, like it, it's easy to lose weight. And I'd like go to their Instagram and, and see what they're lifting. And I'd be like, I could comment to you why are you so weak? It's very easy to squat 700. Like it's not that hard. And they'd be like, well, I just don't have good genetics for lifting. Like, okay, generalize that buddy. You know, like (laughs) uh, some people have things. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like I, I just don't think people fully realize that. Like what, what comes easy for you and how your unique physiology responds to the modern built environment, food environment might be very, very different from someone else. Yeah, man, there, there's so much involved. So I, I just actually finished writing an article. It should be up sometime next week um, about a lot of these things that are, that kind of make weight loss so, so difficult. And like, 
even one of the things you were talking about, right? Like differences in environment, like, and I'm sure you probably heard of the, the study as well. I don't remember the authors, but basically it was looking at like different demographics of so Amish community versus kind of a typical Western community. And they were looking at mm-hmm. rates of overweight and obesity and they're substantially less, but then they compare step counts and step counts were quite a bit higher going into that. That's not quite neat, but like NEPA and a lot of people kind of blend the two. I sometimes just call it neat for simplicity's sake, but um I mean, that, that's a pretty huge difference. And like, I remember my brother had a, uh, a roofing company a long time ago and I was helping him out. And like, I was like 265 mm-hmm. roofing, which <laughs> is brutal. But like, I lost a ton of weight doing that because I mean, I'm having to go up and down, carry up bundles and stuff like that. But then I also weigh 265 and you, yeah, you know, a lot of the other roofers and they're like 150 pound crackheads, you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so it's, it's, I mean, dude, in, so I, I have always historically struggled with my weight. Like I, I was a very fat kid growing up. Um, but then like in, in middle school, it just kind of stretched out. Like I went from being one weight at like four, nine to the same weight at five, 10 bigger frame ten, tended to work out, started gaining some weight in high school. But then, uh, I got, I got very into basketball and also got a summer job doing construction. And I'll tell you what, man, uh, having a steady diet of construction and AAU basketball every weekend, uh, dude, I lost like 20 pounds and it was effortless. I was like 150. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that my difficulty losing weight and, and maintaining weight would be very different if. I had a different career or like lived in a place that required me to walk everywhere. But, you know, that's not, um, you know, the, the easiest, uh, or, or kind of like the most sweeping change to the modern world that might reduce obesity rates, would just be like, get rid of cars, you know, like, uh, just move towards, walkable European style cities and beyond that public transport, uh, but, but outlaw ownership of the private automobile. And we're never going to do that. And I'm not saying we should do that. Like, I, I don't think the, the potential benefits would out, would outweigh the downsides there. Um, but yeah, I mean like that, that in and of itself would make a huge difference, but like, we're never going to do that. Um, and you know, like, there, there are jobs that need to be filled and a lot of them are sedentary and the way that someone's body weight is going to react to taking that sedentary job, it's going to differ a lot person to person. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I did want to touch on, um, I guess, just because we are kind of coming up to that hour mark was whether or not coming out of a diet. So this is, I guess, a little bit more relative to like individuals doing contest prep or maybe not necessarily contest prep lean, but, you know, fairly lean kind of coming out of a diet. I have spoken with several bodybuilders who have said that coming out of a diet or a deficit is like a really great time to put back on a bunch of muscle if you do intelligently, because you're more sensitive and things like that. And I mean, anecdotally, it kind of makes sense. And I, I don't know, I guess I would just kind of like to, to see what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So, um, I'm sure people, uh, who listen to this will push back against what I'm about to say, because I've never been contest lean. 
don't have that uh, kind of implicit authority to lean on. But what I can say is that's definitely not what you see in the research, um, both in terms of just kind of like generally what, what the body composition of people is after they've lost weight and start regaining it. Uh, they seem to disproportionately regain fat, uh, which goes back to what I was talking about before with the body fat overshooting, like the amount you have to eat to regain the muscle you lose may result in disproportionate fat gain to kind of get back to where you were before. And also there've been a handful of studies and a larger handful of case studies on, uh, contest prepping bodybuilders and physique athletes, body comp changes leading into the show, body comp changes after the show. And I mean, based on all of that, like what you're just describing is not what you see. Um, like people, <laughs> uh, so there, there is like an initial kind of spike in lean mass, which is almost entirely just rehydration and, and re-glycogen synthesizing basically. Um, but you know, once, once that's kind of out of your system, uh, people regain some of the muscle they lost. Uh, but you don't tend to see like overshooting on the muscle front where people wind up with way more muscle than they had before. Um, and, and you see fat gain. And if anything, the rates at which people regain fat after they get stage lean seem to be considerably faster than the rates that people gain muscle. So it's not, I mean, it's not impossible that, and, and you know, the one thing I'll note on that as well is uh, most of the research and individual case studies are on natural bodybuilders. And, you know, I, I don't know what it's like for the other guys. Very well could be that you're in a state where you just respond really well to trend. I don't know. But, <laughs> but at, le at least for natural competitors, based on the research that exists, uh, I, I, I think that there's, I think that people are misinterpreting visual feedback, which ultimately isn't the worst thing to misinterpret as a physique athlete because like trying to look good. And, you know, so ultimately the mirror is what matters most. But yeah, I mean, if you're like stage lean, you can put on 10, 15 pounds of fat and still look really lean. Like th that's one of the things that people uh, say when they're dieting down, they're like, oh man, I'm looking good. I only have like five more pounds to take off. Turns out they have like 20 more pounds to take off before they're actually ready for the stage. And so like the, the same thing works in reverse. Like you put on 10 pounds of fat, that's like quite a bit of fat, but you still look fucking great. And like your muscles fill back out, all of your shirts fit tighter. I think it's easy to tell yourself like, oh fuck, I'm regaining so much muscle. Like this is awesome. But yeah, based on the research that exists, that's, that's probably not what's actually happening. Yeah. That's a really good point. Cause I mean, like mechanistically your internal environment seems like it would be a little bit more predisposed to, to put on fat versus muscle. Like you said, at a faster rate. And then also the differences visually that you're seeing, cause like I've known bodybuilders post contest where, you know, three days later, they look better than they did on stage. And you're like, holy <laughs> shit. And you're like, your biceps were like four inches. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then, yeah, like because they were so lean, they could stand to gain a fair amount of body fat without it really impeding their, their, their physique, you know, unless you're actually talking to someone who's like really a high level guy who's like, Oh no, you see this, you're a little too chubby here, but I guess I'm just kind of talking about, uh, <laughs> Yeah, when when you when you're just talking about visually, that that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. 
So was there anything that maybe we forgot to touch on that you think is just sort of worth uh, kind of commenting on? Um, yeah, so <laughs> this may have been better for closer to the beginning of the episode than the end, because I, I feel like what I'm about to say, the people for whom it would be the most beneficial have probably tuned out by now. Um, but I, I think that there's a... I, I think that people, when they're talking about this stuff, I think it's important to use language pretty precisely because I, I think that not doing so leads to quite a bit of confusion. So, uh, for example, if someone uses a TDE calculator and it says, oh, we estimate that your TDE is 3,000 calories a day, they start eating 2,500 calories a day, and maybe they don't end up losing any weight. So they might go on the internet and say, I was in a 500 calorie deficit and I didn't lose any weight. Uh, so like th that's like a common confusion and like, no, you weren't in a 500 calorie deficit. You just mis misestimated your energy expenditure by 500 calories. Like you didn't lose weight necessarily. That means you were, uh, you were at maintenance or similarly, just like people not accounting for metabolic adaptation, like they maybe find a calorie level that is letting them lose a pound a week. And that works pretty well for a month or two. And then eventually they plateau and they're eating the same amount. They're no longer losing weight. And then they say like, Hey, I'm in a 500 calorie deficit and not losing weight anymore. Physics seems to be broken. Um, but it's like, no, uh, you were in a 500 calorie deficit, but the level of intake that resulted in a deficit before now has you at maintenance due to metabolic adaptation. Um, and so I, I think that it's, I think that if, if we could just get it through people's minds that you only know if you were in a deficit or surplus after the fact, like did what you were eating actually result in weight loss? If yes, then congrats, you were in a deficit. If it didn't, then you ate less, but eating less doesn't necessarily put you in a deficit. Like metabolic adaptation could have just absorbed all of that. And so you were at maintenance before and cool, you're still at maintenance. Now it's just a lower maintenance and you'll need to go even lower to be in a deficit. Um, so yeah, like if, if people could just, um, just kind of make the mental switch to view weight gain as essentially synonymous with calorie surplus and weight loss as essentially synonymous with calorie deficit and view things that way versus increases in calories, either above what you were doing before or over what some calculator told you, viewing that as necessarily a surplus and, and on the other hand, decreases as necessarily a deficit. If people stopped looking at it that way and more just looked at it kind of, hey, after the fact, did I gain weight? Cool, I was in a surplus. Did I lose weight? Cool, I was in a deficit. I think that would uh, reduce confusion for a lot of people. Um, and the other thing I wanted to add, and, and again, this probably would have been good up top, is, uh, you know, I talked about all of the, the different ways that the different components of total daily energy expenditure can vary between individuals. But I never put, like, I, I, I never quantified just like how large those resulting differences can be. Like if you take two people who 
weigh about the same amount, but one person maybe just innately has a faster metabolism. They're more active. They, they just inherently do more neat, et cetera, et cetera, versus their, their shadow self who <laughs> same body composition, but they just innately have like a slower basal metabolism. They get less neat. They're a little bit less active, et cetera. Um, there was a recent paper by Ponser and colleagues that the, uh, the, the main point of it was to, um, just look at changes in, um, total daily energy expenditure across the lifespan, but it presents data in a way that allows you to uh, basically just like look at a vertical of people who have the same lean body mass and look at the variability in total daily energy expenditure between like people who have roughly the same amount of body mass and, or uh, lean body. Well, both both body mass and lean body mass, though, though lean body mass is probably more informative and, uh, like for, for people with kind of like a quote unquote normal amount of lean mass. So like 60, 70 kilos, somewhere, somewhere around there. Um, you can see if memory serves something like a threefold difference between people with the, the lowest total daily energy expenditure and people at the highest, um, I forget exactly how many calories this works out to, but it was like five to 15 megajoules per day, which, what is that? God dang it. I, sh I should know the, the megajoules to kilocalories conversion, but I don't. Let me just get this real quick. 5MJ2KCal. Okay. So yeah, that's like 1200 calories. So, you know, um, even, even like discounting outliers, anything from like 1200 to like, uh, 3,600, even up to like 4,000 plus, uh, calories per day. That's like normal. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and, and you know, so, so that's not just variability due to, um, like, uh, like basal metabolic rate, like that, that's taking lifestyle and everything else into account. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like you, you can, you can easily see like a threefold difference from people with the lowest total daily energy expenditure at a given level of lean mass <clears throat> to the people with the highest total daily energy expenditure at the same level of lean body mass. So like in, in absolute and relative terms, the, the potential for variability is huge. And so, you know, if you go on Instagram and you see someone who's just fucking diced and they're like, man, you know, I, this was ended up being a pretty smooth prep. Uh, I, I was still eating like 2,700 calories at the end of it, feeling great. And you look at them and you're like, you motherfucker, how do you look like that? And you're still eating 2,700 calories when I have 20 more pounds of fat to get off and I'm eating like 2000 calories or under 2000 calories. Uh, is there something wrong? It's like, no, there, there's nothing wrong. That's, it's unfortunate, but that's just a, a level of variability you should expect to see. And if anything, like you're the normal one and that guy's the freak, but the freak in a lucky way. <laughs> yeah, that's wild, actually. Like I, I, I knew that there is quite a bit of variability. I guess I wouldn't have thought that it would have been as high as like a threefold difference. That's That's pretty insane. But it's funny, actually, what you mentioned about um, 
the audio. One second. Is, is, this, uh, is this just an audio podcast or audio and video? Uh, it's just audio. Ah, man. Uh, I'm pretty sure I have that paper pulled up, so I, I could have just shared my screen, but never mind. That's fine. <laughs> it's all good. I can include it in the, in the description or something. Um, but yeah, it's funny how like people will say, oh, calorie deficits don't work for, for weight loss, you know, because I'm in a calorie deficit and I'm not losing weight. But then no one would claim the opposite. Like no one claims, you know... <sighs> Like if someone's gaining weight, everyone would be like, oh, it's because you're eating too much. Yeah. You know, but, but somehow the opposite isn't true. And it's, it's just funny how it's kind of unilaterally applied like that, where it's like, oh, okay. But uh, no, I, I think that's a great place to finish. Um, I think you made some really, really great points. And, and it was a really interesting chat altogether. So where can people find you, Greg? Uh, give me one second. I, I distracted myself. I was looking up that Ponser paper. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to send it to you right now. It's... Uh... It's on page 22 of the document and it's figure S1. Uh, if, if you just wanted to put that in the show notes or something. Uh, but anyway, you can find me at strongerbyscience.com. Uh, if you are a person who likes podcasts, which I assume you are, if you're listening to this, uh, you can listen to the Stronger by Science podcast uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are found. Um Let's see if, if you enjoyed this stuff and you're thinking like, oh man, uh, accounting for differences in metabolic rate and metabolic adaptation, blah, blah, blah. That seems very complicated. I don't want to do all of that math by hand for myself. What could I do? Uh, what do you know? We have a nutrition app called Macro Factor that you can check out uh, on the app store or play store that uh, does make week to week calorie adjustments for you based on your nutrition and weight data. Very useful. It's been very helpful for me. And uh, yeah, if you want to get in touch, probably the best place to do so. Whew, that's rough. I used to just give a long list, but as a result, uh, I just spent all of my time just responding to messages on everything. And so I, I'm a bit, I'm quite a bit harder to get up with these days. Um, your best bet would probably be the Stronger by Science Facebook group, though, or subreddit. Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely make sure you uh, go give them a follow. And if you are using any sort of tracking apps, um, definitely check out Macrofactor. You guys have been uh, crushing with that. That's been getting like a lot of uh, a lot of publicity in like quite a few magazines actually being called out. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, we're we're stoked about it. Actually, so there's a little bit too much hype and it's leading to blowback. Uh, so like <laughs> on, on Reddit specifically, uh, there are enough people in various fitness subreddits like recommending it and giving it rave reviews that sound like paid marketing that people like I have seen it suggested that we're running like uh a surreptitious ad campaign that is against Reddit site rules. It's like, no, we're not. People just really like the app. Uh, don't, don't punish me for greatness. But uh, what, a, what a problem to have. It's like the reviews are so good that we are pretty sure you're paying people to, yeah, there, to write them. There are too many good reviews that are too positive. Um, yeah. Of, of all of the problems we could have, that is yeah. certainly not the worst one. <laughs> That's awesome. 
that's awesome. Well, man, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's super cool to see more of this stuff kind of coming in and, and uh, helping people because I know like my fitness pal, I used that a long time ago and I have sent, it's been years since I've used that one. I just am like, that's too, way too inaccurate. So I don't, I don't really like using that one, but uh, it's yeah. awesome to see, you know, new, new tools and resources kind of coming out on a regular basis. Um, Greg, man, thanks so much for jumping on. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, man.